Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARK or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARK to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Greetings, everyone. Um, I am here with my dear friend, and I do still call him mentor, but uh, friend and mentor, uh, Art Laffer, who um, who has a book out quite recently, Taxes Have Consequences. And as I was reading this book, and, and I've read versions before, um, uh, they took me or it took me back to my early days uh, with Art Laffer, uh, 19, uh, 1976-77. Uh, at USC, uh, Art was teaching in the business school and uh, was bringing sort of a supply-side school of economics into th that school. And I uh, took his class and uh, was blown away uh, by, well, first of all, he, he enters the class and, and starts with a joke, starts with a joke. And, and then he starts talking about current events, uh, uh, political, economic, uh, and so forth. And, uh, and then he, so he pulls us more and more into the subject matter. And by the end of the class, the board is covered with equations and honestly, as we're leaving, I don't know how we got there, but we got there. He just lured us in and made us a part of what was going on. And, you know, I was in awe back then, and uh, I'd never experienced anything like it. Uh, and I would say that uh, I would say that in reading the book, it, it brought back those memories because uh, so much data uh, in this book, so many graphs, so many uh, facts and figures that you're not going to be reading elsewhere. Uh, so I highly recommend it. It's it's a, a it's a history book uh, and uh, quite effective one as well. So welcome, Art. So happy you've agreed to join me again. I, I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you very much for having me here, and thanks for plugging the book. I, you know, it's a, a fun book, and it's the complete history of the U.S. income tax from 1913 to the present, six months after the 16th Amendment, Woodrow Wilson put the income tax in in the U.S., and the story goes from there. I don't know if you want me to describe it a little bit. Right. One of the, um, one of the, the phrases you used uh, early on as in, in uh, the classroom was, government spending is taxation. Uh, and and that stuck with me because you know government spending is so much uh, well throughout my career has been such such so controversial uh, and um, so the this idea the taxation outright taxation or inflation or you know debt uh, what have you 
uh, government spending is taxation. Uh, and then reading this book uh, and, and you know, delving into that a little bit more. Yes, I think that would be great, uh, uh, Art, if you could do that. Just a quick synopsis. Well, sure. I mean, government go governments don't create resources. I mean, there are certain businesses the governments are in. We're not talking about that, the Postal Service and that. There they provide a direct service for the cost. You buy the stamp. They That's where they have a business there. The military is something very different where it's a useful service. We're talking about government spending outside of those realms. And you know, government doesn't create resources. It redistributes resources. It takes from someone and gives to someone else. Uh, that's what the government does. And in that sense, the government spending is taxation. They can finance that tax taxation through inflation uh, and decreasing the monetary base, or they can do it through bonds, or they can do it through the tax codes. And this book is on specifically on one of the tax codes, the, the U.S. income tax. We also look at payroll taxes. We also look at uh, tariffs and quotas, et cetera, like that. But this is specifically the tax system uh, we have uh, 1913, the income tax was put into effect. Uh, we have every single tax return from 1913 to the present. Well, two years ago, because they don't release the data for two years because of privacy. Uh, we have all the data. We know who the person is, not by name, but by which tax return it is, who is the uh, highest income in the bottom 99%, the lowest income in the top 1%. The book focuses on the recent political structure of the top one percenters and the highest marginal income tax rate. And just for the just for the record, uh, the income tax was put in in 1913. At that time, uh, the highest marginal income tax rate was seven percent. Seven percent was the highest rate. It was graduated steeply from one percent to seven percent, but it was on a very very small base. There were 358,000 filers. In 1913, that's out of an adult population of about 62 million. So it was a very little teeny tiny group of people that were even subject to filing a tax return and then a very progressive state. That tax code lasted for about three years, uh, 13, 14, and 15. But then, bam, they started the big rise in raising tax rates. By 1918, they'd raised the highest marginal income tax rate from 7% to 77%. Uh, and the number of filers were increased about 17 fold to about six and a half, 6.6 million of the adults. Now, the reasons, the logic was we had a pandemic, of course, uh, and we also had World War I, but there's always something there to justify the rise we did. And then we had uh, the, the immediate after the World War I period, uh, Wilson uh, was gracious enough to give the American taxpayers a benefit, a little gift. Uh, he wrote, reduced the highest tax rate from 77% to 73%. You're welcome, America. And that, that lasted for three years. We had a big election in two, uh, 1920. Uh, it was between Cox, who was the governor of Ohio, and Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, his best friend, who was undersecretary of the Navy. You'll come with that name again, by the way, uh, versus Harding and Coolidge. Uh, Harding and Coolidge won the election in 1920 by the largest percentage ever. Uh, it was a huge landslide, all on taxes. And they took office in March of 21, all right? And so the, the, mark, the beginning of the tax reform came in 21. So from uh, 1919, 20, and 21, that rate was 73%, all right? And then they dropped it 
uh, all the way down to 25% during the roaring 20s. It was called the roaring 20s. Duh. The economy boomed. You see a great thing. Unemployment rates went way down. Employment went way up. Prosperity went there. The inflation rate dropped. We had 11 years of budget surpluses on the federal level. And then, of course, in the end of 1929, uh, the last quarter, the House and the Senate passed bills called the Smoot-Hawley Tariff which was roughly speaking a 60% increase in tax rates on traded products. And of course the market catech, I think it fell in that one quarter, 30, 35%. And then it continued its fall down to, oh, about, about 7% of its previous high. It really collapsed. If I could, I'd love to actually spend some time. And uh, I reread the, the, the chapter on the roaring twenties because you know, if you think about today, um, I, I often equate what we're going through today to uh, something like what happened back in the late 19 teens into the 20s. So, you know, we had we had World War One. So we had a war, and we had a pandemic, the Spanish flu, and of course we just went through uh, a pandemic and and a, a war. This is an echo of that time, and I'm I'm struck uh, by the fact that yes, there we were on the gold standard back then, and the uh, inflation rates because of supply chain and all of the other problems went up to twenty four percent. I think it was twenty four percent in June of uh, nineteen twenty, and by uh, June of twenty one, it went down to minus fifteen percent. Um, now, I'm just mentioning the similarities. We have been thinking that if we could get tax policy right here in the U.S. now, uh, given all of the innovation that is evolving now uh, and, and would be incentivized even more, uh, that we could enter the Roaring Twenties uh, again, uh, you know, 100 years later. And we can get back to the history in a minute. But what would you do? What could, what would you do that's realistic? If you know, let's say a new administration came in, uh, and there was—I don't know if these days we could get a landslide, but in in today's terms, a surprise in terms of you know the acceptance of someone suggesting new ideas. What would what would you do if you were running for president and? And this is all based on data, Kathy, yes. as yes. you know. Yes. Uh, and the reason I belabored and blabbered on uh, is because we have all the data. This is not about, uh, without data, anything is possible. With data, you know what happens. Uh, this is not about um, how you feel. Uh, this is data. Uh, based upon the facts of history, based upon the responses and all of that, what you would want to have, and covering the monetary as well, you want the lowest possible tax rate on the broadest possible tax base. So you provide people with the least incentives to evade, avoid, or otherwise not report taxable income. And believe me, if you read the book, you can see how much they do avoid. It's amazing. And you have the broadest base, so you provide the least places to where they can put their income to avoid paying taxes. So you have a low rate, broad base, flat tax, just what I did for Jerry Brown when he ran for presence. Number two, you would have spending restraint. That's the next North Star. You know, you'd have, you wouldn't have all this stimulus spending, which doesn't help the economy. It hurts the economy. It causes people not to work. You give them gifts. They stop working. The people you take it from make them not work. 
Uh, you would stop that. You would have spending restraint, uh, sound money. There is very little on earth uh, that can bring an economy to its knees quicker than unsound paper currencies, unbacked paper currencies. We have a classic period now of exactly that. We had another one in the 70s, all of which we go through very carefully in the book. Uh, number four, uh, regulations. That's the fourth North Star. Uh, all we all knew need we we all know we need regulations, Kathy. We do. I mean, can't, regulations are really really important. But what you don't want to do is go beyond the specific purpose at hand and create a lot of collateral damage. I I want to just point out the regulatory stuff on energy, fossil fuels, a lot of the regulatory stuff on other things. You you everyone's got their own regulatory stuff on healthcare. I mean, regulatory stuff just out the wazoo that is really unnecessary needs to be brought back under control to allow the growth. And lastly, uh, and this is one that a lot of my friends disagree with me on, but they're wrong, just joking, uh, is free trade. It's free trade. Free trade has been the generator of economic growth of the United States up until the income tax by immense amounts. Starting in 1640 on through, let's say 1870, we ran a trade deficit. They provided, the foreigners provided the capital Comparative advantage allowed us to specialize in the production of products and really jettisoned U.S. growth. We need to have free trade today, especially with those countries that we have the biggest problems with, uh, with Russia, with China, uh, with Iran, uh, with Cuba, with North Korea. Uh, I'm not saying in nuclear weapons, Kathy, don't give them something that's going to hurt us. But what we need to do is have that so we do business with them, so we explain so the interaction is there so we can create an influence in their countries to move away from the bad totalitarian dictatorships that they have to win them back into there. Everyone loves his or her customers. No one wants to bomb their customers. If we are China's customers and they are ours, if they invest in our country and we invest in ours, that's a huge block to stopping war. China's going to be here 50 years from now. So are we. We need to learn how to work with those countries, not be at enemy odds. So low rate, broad based flat tax, spending restraint, sound money, minimal regulations and free trade. And then get the hell out of the way and let markets solve it. Then we turn the world over to Kathy Wood and ARC and let them solve these things by providing capital to the places where it's needed most. And that's that's the solution. This administration and uh, unfortunately has gone exactly in the opposite direction in each and every one of these pillars of prosperity. Yes, and uh, I hope I hope everyone sends this to uh, those uh, they think could actually help us. You know, with the right putting put the right people uh, into office. Um, I did want to go back to since your book is about the history of taxation. You know, the, the, the Laffer curve, you're famous for the Laffer curve. Um, uh, what is that perfect point when you lowest rate possible, broadest base? What do you, what is that rate? Well, I, I don't know what that rate is. It depends on the rest of the taxes and all that. There are a lot of things in there that does. But let me tell you what it isn't. It is not a 91 percent tax rate on the rich. It's not a 70 percent tax rate on the rich. It's not a 37% tax rate on the rich. It's much, much lower than that. You know, what you have been doing here with ARC, and, uh, and I'm just so proud of you, it's I'm just bursting at the seams, but you have been discovering that it's the innovations in America that has made America different from the rest of the world. 
It's the Elon Musk. It's the George Soros's. It's the Bill Gates's. It's the, all those people. We want to not go after those people. We want to encourage. Those are what make America different from all these other countries. What we have found out in this book is every time you raise tax rates on the rich, all right, every time you raise that highest rate on the top 1%, the economy underperforms. It does. Facts. This is not opinions. This is what actually happens. Whenever you raise those tax rates on the rich, the rich do much less well. Their dividends, their capital gains, and all of that are less. The economy underperforms. They do less. But what they also do, Kathy, is they also shelter their income. They spend all their time worrying about taxes and not about producing products, not doing that, to avoid having to pay these high taxes. What also happens, by the way, is the poor, the minorities of disenfranchised, the lowest echelons get hammered. The Great Depression and World War II were not friends of poor people. Let me just say that fragment. And lastly, every time we raise tax rates in the rich, and you'll see it in the plots in there, it's just every time you collect less revenues from the rich. You do. I mean, you know, it's a boom. When you cut tax rates in the rich, they feel much less inclined to shelter their income, and they earn a lot more. And so they pay more. And it's just amazing. Those are the consistent facts year in year. How they do it is fun, delicious, and fun. We've got all the tax shelters that were done there in chapter two for the last hundred plus years. I mean, they're really cool, but everyone does it. And if you look at Bill Gates, you look at Warren Buffett, you look at any of the people today, they still do it. Warren Buffett's, uh, I go through this in the, in, the, in the book carefully, Warren Buffett in 2010, according to economics, uh, the uh, the uh, the, uh, the uh, Simon Hague Simon definition of income earned about twelve and a half billion dollars. Uh, his appreciation in assets, uh, his spending, and his gifts, all of that included in his income, earned about twelve and a half billion dollars, and he paid about a little less than seven million in income taxes. And this is his own letters to the New York Times. I wrote that in the journal because of high taxes. He used all the legal, very proper, very good tax shelters and paid only at a low rate broad based flat tax he would have uh, paid one and a half billion or more in taxes and he would have been happier we would have been happier the world would have been better so art why is it so difficult for people to understand this in our own lives each one of us does try to minimize taxes legally i mean just as common sense you would do that right why is it so difficult to convince, you know, policymakers that this is the right thing to do? If because it diminishes their role. I mean, you you remember the Earl, Earl Long said it: "Don't tax you, don't tax me, tax the guy behind the tree." Yes. Uh, every new tax code thing, I can raise another twenty million to my campaign. You know, these are the wrong people there because they don't have any skin in the game. You know, what is, uh, you know, it's fun spending other people's monies because you don't bear the consequences. And what we have to do is make sure these things get to the voters. I, I did Jerry Brown's flat tax in 1992 in the Democratic primary, which was exactly the tax plan I proposed to you there. All right. And we went from eighth in the race to second in the race. We were coming into the final against that blue eyed guy sucking his lower lip. You remember Billy Clinton? <laughs> from Hope, Arkansas, uh, we, there we're coming into the New York and California primaries, having just one Connecticut and just one Oregon coming into there. We were coming in that in the Democratic primary, the voters love the low rate broadcast flat tax and the liberal Democratic primary. So we don't have any problems discussing 
voters, convincing voters, we have a problem making it happen through the political process. That's where the clog occurs. That's where the sclerosis happens. And what you need to do is have a good vote, like a Reagan vote, like a Harding Coolidge vote, like a John F. Kennedy vote. By the way, that was this. Kennedy was the pro-growth agenda back then. And find someone. The Trump vote, I think, was to a large extent responsive to the bad economics that had been done prior under, under Obama. And I hope 24 is the same thing. Yeah. Um, uh, you mentioned, uh, we mentioned the Roaring Twenties. Uh, that would be very good news if we got this right and, you know, and policymakers adopted some of the th you things, the policies that you think are so important. Uh, obviously, the Depression was a disaster. And um, you talk about the role of taxes there. You mentioned Smoot it's shocking. Yeah. It's just shocking. Smoot Hawley and then all the other insidious taxes that evolved and made, made things worse. So maybe you could go through that a little bit. Sure. I mean, the Smoot Hawley was a 60 percent increase in tariffs. As I mentioned, it passed the House and the Senate in the last quarter of 29. The market was collapsing. Uh, Hoover signed it into law, and I think it was June of 1930. We went down, the depression was on. At that time, taxes weren't weren't collected on a, an accrual basis. Uh, you didn't have es estimated tax. So the uh, revenues came in in 31, uh, in 31 really badly, a huge drop in revenues. That's when Hoover responded, we have to have a solvent government. He put through the tax increase of January 1st, 1932. Uh, raising the highest rate from 25% to 63%, uh, collapsing the bracket, all that, and it went really bad. The election was lost to Roosevelt. Roosevelt came in in March of 33. The first thing he did was a wealth tax. He confiscated all the gold in the U.S. at $20.67 an ounce, and then six months later, uh, raised the price of gold to $35 an ounce after confiscating criminal penalties, and the, the Great Depression happened. So it is a exactly a story of taxes. We put in the payroll tax in 1937 with three taxes, 37 a 1% tax employer and employee, 32 a 2%, uh, 38 a 2% tax employer employee, 39 a 3% tax employer employee. That was the scheduled bill that happened. The crash, the secondary crash was so horrible that they rescinded the second and the third increases in the payroll tax. It's, it's just incredible. Like Japan did with their collapse, you know, when Japan did it in 1989 and then on to their, their, their payroll tax. So that's exactly the story. I could go through individual ones. They had, they had a 12.5% per annum retained earnings tax. Imagine that. They raised the death tax to almost 90% on that. They had a gift tax. All of these were new. Just they piled up. If it swam, they taxed it. If it flew, they taxed it. If it crawled, they taxed it. If it ran, they taxed it. If it dug holes in the ground, they taxed it. If it just sat there and went, Ugh, they taxed it. It was just amazing. And of course, you can see the thing. The highest rate went from 25 to 63 to 79 in 1936 to 94% in, 19, in 1944, 45. You wonder why there was a problem. It was a tax-driven thing. The Great Depression was taxes, taxes, and more taxes, and nothing but taxes. People argue, like Milton Friedman, some of the others, is monetary policy. Monetary policy was a consequence of that. There was a run in the bank because everyone knew they needed gold as a shelter. I mean, gold is the first refuge of the cautious. When they all pulled the reserves out of the banks, the bank's money to multiplier shrank, the money supply shrank. That was a consequence of the taxes, not a cause. I'd like to 
pull the discussion around that to today, which here again, we have deposits leaving the system and they are moving into government-backed securities, treasuries, money market funds. Seems to me, and you do mention this in the book as well, uh, that you know we could be in another crowding out situation here, right? Because money M two is negative on a year over year basis. We haven't seen that since the depression. Uh, deposits are leaving the banking system for higher yields, and so um, you know it seems uh, mind boggling to me that uh, to hear people say, "Well, I took my money out of the banks," especially around the regional bank crisis, March, and and perhaps we're still in it. So I lowered my risk and increased my return with these government-backed securities. It's, um, I think, uh, do, could you could you comment on that? Just as, sure, I'd love to. Yeah, let, let me go right in. You're you're hitting right on the right on the full throttle on the top speed. Uh, it's the Fed balance sheet. The Fed starting in two thousand eight, two thousand nine decided they wanted to stop everyone from having losses. If you if you eliminate losses, you also eliminate gains and profits. You know, whenever you do a zero interest rate policy, you're trying to underwrite losers. Uh, markets don't create that. The Fed increased its balance sheet from, I think, $830 billion in 2008 to maybe $8 trillion today. There's been a huge expansion, a lot of it in the recent period, a big dub, more than doubling. Now, I, I have a slightly different view of M2 than you do. I view M2 as reflecting more the demand for money than the supply of money. Once you allow these interest rates to rise, uh, that reduces uh, the demand for money. People want to hold less interest, non-interest bearing securities. They want to move out. Uh, you have this huge increase in the supply of money. This is what I believe has led to a lot of the inflation problems that we currently have. And it's not over. And then, of course, what the inflation does is they higher interest rates as these banks, once they've lived and built their whole portfolios on a zero interest rate world, they have to go way out with their assets to get any type of yield. All of their liabilities are short term and they're all interest sensitive. So when the interest rates go up, you have unrealized capital losses on the long-term balance sheet. You have higher expenses there and places like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature and Republican, all the ones you and I have talked about at length, all of them are effectively, if marked to market, would be underwater. And obviously, bank people pull out of banks like that. They're the fastest growing. Biggest. So we have that situation today. I don't think it's over, Kathy. I think what we really need is what you would like to see and what I would like to see is making the dollar sound and bringing interest rates down correctly down because of market anticipations being right. We have had a decline in the expected real return on a unit of capital over the last 20 plus years, 25 years, that has been has been cataclysmic. I mean, at the end of Bill Clinton, the difference between the one year yield on a bond and the rate of inflation, which is pretty high then, that's a high yield, has gone to where it's negative today. Uh, and that negative real yield is the senescence of America. And we need to stop that with sound money and sound tax policy and restrained spending and free regulation and free trade. And we can do it quickly, by the way. We can reverse this overnight if you put the policies in quickly. With Reagan, we delayed them, which was the mistake. But 
I was going to go to that next. What okay. was so interesting about that time, I'm very early in my career, and you know, as uh, a Laffer disciple, I believed that the Reagan tax cuts were a really good thing, and you know that they would ultimately um, help uh, accelerate growth, growth, and uh, actually lower the deficit. Right. Uh, and uh, of course, at the same time, we had uh, Chairman Volcker strangling inflation. And uh, as you just said, we had the phasing in of the uh, tax cut. And I think that we, or I, I guess uh, this history would have taught us this. And, uh, uh, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't phase in because people will just delay uh, delay, you know, recognizing income until they get that lowest rate, which was 1983. So we had Volcker strangling uh, inflation uh, out of the system and this deferral of activity, which really caused a recession. I remember in my early days in New York City, you know, I couldn't even talk about the Laffer curve because everybody was so sure it was wrong uh, until after that period, it was oh so right, uh, and you got your your uh, you, you you got the credit you deserved. But I think that's such an important uh, understanding. This idea: don't phase these things in; do them quickly, right? Exactly. I mean, you know, it's amazing how tax cuts don't work until they take effect. Yes. If you know they're going to cut tax rates next year. What do you do this year? You defer all the income you can till next year. And in 81, we passed a bill where the tax cuts really began in full on January 1st, 1983. So we caused the date re deep recession, depression, whatever you want to call it of 81, 82. I don't think it was Volcker. Uh, we have had good monetary policy historically that did not lead to crashes, uh, but it was the deferral, the same thing they did with Harding and Coolidge, the same thing that with Kennedy, and then the same thing with Reagan as the deferral. From January 1st, 1983 to June 30th, 1984, that's 18 months, Cassie, Kathy, a year and a half, six quarters, U.S. G real GDP grew by 12% during that period. That's an 8% per annum co compound rate. That's Chinese growth rates. Inflation went down, not up with the boom. It was no Phillips curve. It was boom. We won the election with 49 out of 50 states. I mean, and Mondale was a great guy. He was a good candidate, a good person. Everyone liked him. But we cleaned his clock because you're running against God. I mean, Reagan really did the job on it. It's worked in every other country as well. And you can just see it. People don't worry about taxes until they have to pay them. <laughs> then they really do. And you're so right. It's like the state movement. Why is everyone moving to Tennessee, Texas, Florida, Nevada? It's not because taxes are higher there. Right. And I was that was the next topic. It's uh, I, I, I love this idea that the states are competing and that actually, I think uh, COVID, it was a terrible tragedy. But uh, this idea of understanding, oh, maybe we can work remotely, uh, productively. Uh, some can, some some can't, but uh, it is possible. And uh, I think it's accelerated the the movement towards these zero or low-tech states. Yeah, it sure has. I mean, you know, I live here in Tennessee because it is the single lowest tax state in the nation. Uh, you know, we have no income tax earned or unearned. 
Uh, we have the lowest, arguably the lowest sales tax in the nation. We now have no gift or estate tax. I mean, we have the no tax in the Constitution. We have right to work in the Constitution. We have a part-time legislature, all of that. We are arguably the fastest growing state in the nation. We're the only state that attracts capital net income from Florida. You know, 48 states lose it. We're the only one that gains it. Uh, if you look at that, we have the biggest improvement in uh, in public services of any state in the nation, especially education. And we have the biggest surplus in our budget of any state in the nation. We have fully funded pension funds, uh, both state and local, fully funded. We've got the highest credit rating of any state in the nation. Other than that, it's really a lousy state. But, <laughs> you know, working here is so much more fun with lower taxes. And you found that by moving from New York to Florida. I mean, I, I wish you'd have come here, come here because I'd love to have you be an extra neighbor, Kathy. Thank you. And, you know, you, you were a big inspiration behind, uh, you know, my career. And, and I, I definitely couldn't have done it without you. Um, I just wanted to, uh, I, I didn't know the, that statistic about uh, Tennessee being the only state uh, attracting people from Florida, because we know uh, Florida, the, the net uh, migration is roughly a thousand people per day still. And uh, it's it's been astonishing to see St. Petersburg, the Tampa Bay region, just boom. And, and even the time we've been here, uh, I've noticed it change. And that's only 18 months. So, uh, again, this idea of, you know, uh, making decisions quickly and, uh, you know, and, and, and being decisive from a policymaker point of view uh, is... Um, is important. Is important. It really is important. And, you know, just to correct, make sure we, we attract AGI, adjusted gross income using tax returns. I don't know what the number of people uh, uh, number is, but we attract. Uh, and the uh, reason I use that is because that's where the tax rates bite. I see. Um, but yeah. we attract adjusted gross income net from Florida. Every other state loses it. The rich people go to Florida. Uh, the really rich ones come here. Yeah, you know, and that was a joke, Kathy. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. I was. Yeah, that's okay. You've not changed since you were a student. Let me just tell you, it's a, it, it, one of the most literal people I've ever met in my life is Kathy Wood. <laughs> uh, yes, I I don't get jokes, and here I just yes, told that, that's true. You, you don't. <laughs> I just told everybody you started the class out with a joke, and you know that was. You know, uh, it was a moment for me to say, am I going to get this one or not? <laughs> Everybody <Yeah>. else would. <laughs> anyway, um, so Art, is there anything else you would like to share about uh, taxes or your book? Yes, I would like to share one thing that I think is really important here. And this is the liberal critique of, of supply siders and of conservatives is how do you deal with the racial injustice uh, of this planet? Uh, the inner cities, the predominantly black inner city nest neighborhoods, and there's other ethnic groups in there, but the poor, the minority, the disenfranchised that have so missed out on the uh, benefits of prosperity. And they have not shared in the beneficence of the of the U.S. for years. And the reason is because of welfare payments uh, are withdrawn as you earn more income. If you have a welfare system, if you get a job, if you get a higher pay, you lose all your social welfare benefits. I, the example I use is the is the mother, single mother of two in Philadelphia. If she earns $29,000 a year, uh, you can take all the after-tax income she gets from that pay, and then you can get all the social welfare benefits and the value of that. You add them together, and this is the total spending power she has. If she, through gumption and initiative and drive, 
makes 58,000, doubles the pay. You can go through that same calculation, look at all the social welfare benefits and the net spending power she would have making 58,000 versus 29,000 is the exact same. That is effectively a 100% tax rate. That's why you've got to solve the inner city by getting rid of that, what it's called the poverty trap is because you all of a sudden face these 100% tax rates and everyone stops and you never break through to the hop. You've got to solve poverty by making it tax-free zones on the inner cities. Now, obviously you need some welfare there to make sure that people can survive and go through, but you want to make it no payroll tax, no income. I wrote this in 19, I think 78, I wrote it called Enterprise Zones, maybe even earlier, maybe 74. I think it was 74 while I was still in Chicago. Enterprise Zones where you have no payroll tax on the employer employee for people who are live in the Enterprise Zone and who work in the Enterprise Zone. To no income tax, up to $50,000 a year income, either employer or employee. Again, with the same, thorough review of building codes, regulations, restrictions, requirements, all of these to make sure that they're not anti-economic growth. Some of the work rules that are put through by unions and all that. Lastly, the, the critical one here is for kids in the inner, inner city, no minimum wage. These kids can't find jobs at $15 an hour. They can't find jobs. Uh, so therefore, they don't get that first job. Uh, after being unemployed for a year or two, Kathy, they become unemployable. They don't get the work skills. They don't get that. After being unemployable for a couple of years, Kathy, they, they become hostile then you have to protect yourself from them. We need to make sure that they get that first job, they get the requisite skills to, to work up the ladder. That is done by tax rate reductions in the enterprise zone. You obviously have to make them time dated. You can't have it last for a thousand years, but you have it reviewed maybe every five or 10 years to make sure that we're making headway. And, but that's what needs to be done. Growth is the answer. Benjamin Hook, Hooks put it so beautifully when he said that blacks are hired last and fired first. We need, to, for blacks to do well, we need so damn many jobs out there, they gotta hire us. Kennedy said it, and I, I know you're a fan of Kennedy as I am, a little bit of Irish and us both, but you know, Kennedy put it so beautifully, he said the best form of welfare is still a good high paying job. And we have not done that. We need to have not this fancy tax deduction, tax credit offsets, omission. that's all fancy stuff for, we need no payroll tax, no income tax, Third review of building codes, regulations, and then have no minimum wage because that kills these kids in the inner city. And you and I get all this fancy education and then we can earn above the minimum wage. They don't get that fancy education. They need to get the requisite skills through apprenticeship programs. And that's where we need to go. I, wow, this has been fantastic, Art. I, I honestly hope that you know all of the potential policymakers out there or candidates listen to this because it's so important. And I know from taking your classes that you can go th throughout the world and, and you have advised many leaders around the world on tax policy, on uh, monetary policy. And those who have followed your advice have benefited. I know uh, Thatcher in uh, in the U Prime Minister Thatcher in the UK, but many other countries. Maybe you can just rattle them off. Well, Chile was one. Argentina was one. I was down there in Chile in '73 uh, for the first time after Fidel's visit, and then in the late '70s we did all the reforms. Chile was the best performing country, supply side economics all the way. I remember that. Sound money, tax cuts, fully funded pensions, spending restraint, all of that. It was done there then under Menem uh, with Rocky Fernandez and Pedro Poe and 
and, and all the other guys there. I mean, uh, Domingo Cavallo and all the team there, supply side reforms there. Now, that one didn't last as long. You got some Lopez Murphy, you got a change in the government and went back to the old ways. But even five years of prosperity, Kathy, is better than no years of prosperity. You know, when none of us win this war for a thousand years, for a billion years, forever, all of it's battle. It's like Reagan always said, you know, uh, America's prosperity is one generation away from being lost. And each time we have to go and and it is true. We had the great prosperity under Reagan, but it was lost under the under uh, uh, under W and Obama and uh, was regained a little bit under Trump. And then now it's really being lost by Biden. Uh, the, the the prosperity of Harding and Coolidge was lost uh, by uh, Hoover and uh, Roosevelt and then was regained by Kennedy for a very short period. We had the, I, I think they called it the Camelot era, if you were, well, you were too young to remember it, but he was my commencement speaker. Jack Kennedy was President Kennedy. And, you know, that's where I got all the phrases. I, I brought all these phrases to Reagan. The, the one I love most of all and is no Americans ever be better off, Kathy, by pulling a fellow American down. We just aren't. Every one of us is made better off if any one of us is made better off. And then the next line, which I took to Reagan, which we used in the campaign of 80, a rising tide, it raises all boats. Balance up, not down. You know, this is, we can do it. We can't do it by attacking the rich. The rich are not the problem. The rich are the answer. The poverty is the problem. We need so jobs. We need to grow that. Making poor people rich is much better than making rich people poor. We're blessed. You and a couple of others, Kathy, are my make my life worthwhile. I I've got to tell you, with my kids and grandkids and great grandkids and you guys, you know, you make me feel almost immortal because of the wonderful things you've done. And I'm such a big fan of yours. And you know, it's hard work. It's getting facts out. You're not going to be great every day. No one is. But let me just tell you what you have done with ARC is just spectacular. I'm so proud to be part of it. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Art. Couldn't have done it without you all those well, years ago. So Yes, you could have, but I'll take credit. I'll take all the credit I can get. <laughs> thank you. All right, Art. Thank you so much. And uh, everyone, great history book. Uh, and, and it's fun, too. Art makes economics and history fun. So thanks. Thanks again, Art. My pleasure, Kathy. Thank you. To the next time. All righty. The deal. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.